Um, we left off with this, what we called uh, Lachish letter three, or, or Lachish letter, however you want to pronounce it, um, which talks about a, a, li a literate soldier. Remember, the, the point was that during the reign of Josiah, we see this increase in um, um, literacy. That is, we begin to see uh, more and more epigraphic inscriptions. We begin to see um, more writing being done by someone besides the palace. <coughs> And the, the significance of, of Lachish letter three is that you get this idea that a common soldier in the army says, hey, wait, uh, of course I can write. What do you mean I can't write? There, there, becomes, there comes to be a stigma with not being able to, you know, with not, with not being able to write. Okay? So that's the significance of this letter. It shows that not only was there a lot of writing going on, there began to be this negative image of those who didn't know how to write. Now, keep in mind that most of the people still couldn't read or write. But here is a guy in the, in the army who's like, no, of course I know how to write. In fact, if, if you called me a scribe, I wouldn't use him. That thing. All right. Um, <clears throat> we also see uh, this ostracon, which is, a, which is a nice one. little piece broken off here, the writing again going across. This is called the uh, Matsad Hashavyahu ostracon. Okay? Uh, Matsad Hashavyahu uh, is an ancient fortress on the border of ancient Judea, uh, facing the Philistine city of Ashdod, near the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's about um, about a mile south of Yavneyam, which is a seaport on the coast, and about seven kilometers northwest of Yavne, the, the actual main city, um, which is about 15 kilometers south of Tel Aviv. It's four ostracon. Uh, remember, Nostrica is a broken piece of pottery on which there's a writing. Um, <clears throat> and it's a, it's a fascinating Ostracon, this one in particular here, um, because we have reference to something recorded in Scripture. So let me, let me walk you through it very quickly. Again, this is Matsad Hashavyahu, Ostrakhan, or sometimes called the, the Yavneyam letter. And basically what this says is, uh, let, me, let me set it up. In the Bible, in, in the book of Exodus, <clears throat> you have this law, right? If you take your neighbor's garment in pledge, like as collateral, you must return it to him before the sun sets, because it's his only clothing, the sole covering for his skin. And what else shall he sleep? Therefore, if he cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. Basically, there was a law, <clears throat> whereas if uh, you were going to hire a worker, say for instance, and you, couldn't, you didn't know, is this the, a guy that came in and is going to work for you? And you didn't know if he was going to run off with your bucket and your... So what he would do is he would leave his coat, and then he would agree to work. And then he would work, work, work. At the end of the day, he would do the work, and you would give him back his coat and whatever pay you owe him or however you're paying him. Um, but what this rule says is, apparently people were taking advantage of this. They were saying, no, I'm keeping your coat until you're finished with your job. And this rule is a very socially just rule, and it says, no, you've got to give him his coat back. Because that, it's his cloak, right? It's his overcoat. They also use these to sleep in. So, you know, they didn't have beds and bedrooms when usually when working out in the field. And many of you who've gone camping or worked out in the field, do you just sleep out under the stars and you just pull a nice a blanket over you? These were cloaks, kind of outer cloaks that they would wear. You had to give it back to them. Okay, so if I, if I agreed to work for you, I would, I would say, okay, here's my clatter. I'm not going to take all the tools that you've entrusted me with. I do my work, I come back, and I say, I'm not done with my job, but can I get my cloak for the night? And you'd have to give it to me according to the rule here. And Amos 2.8, Amos is a prophetic book in the Hebrew Bible. 
They reclined by every altar, again, on garments taken in pledge, right? And drink in the house, uh, in the house of God, wine bought with fines they imposed. This is a very critical prophecy against people who are abusing the poor. Again, it's a, a socially just uh, prophetic text, and basically saying these guys are reclining uh, on every, by all, every altar on garments taken in pledge, meaning. These were these pledged garments, and instead of giving them back like Exodus 22 says they should, they're keeping them. And this is considered a, a very bad thing. It's a, it's a mistreatment of the workers. Uh, and here, look, they're, they're drinking wine uh, with, with, they're drinking wine uh, bought with fines that they imposed on people. So you're not supposed to impose fines. You're not supposed to abuse the laborers. And here they are. So here's a prophetic text yelling at them for doing that. Here's the text that says you shouldn't do that. Okay, with that in mind, we get this inscription here, okay? May the official, my Lord, hear the plea of a servant. So it's a complaint letter, okay? He's writing a letter, just like you write a letter to the DMV or the police about a ticket that you got that you shouldn't have got because it's unfair, right? Your servant, again, this, your servant is referring to himself. Your servant was working uh, at the harvest. Your servant was, was in Hatsarasam. Your servant did his reaping, finished, and stored the grain a few days ago before the Shabbat, before the Sabbath. Um, when your servant had finished his reaping and had stored it for a few days ago, uh, Hoshiyahu, son of Shabbai, came and took your servant's garment. Right? He's supposed to give it back. Right? When I had finished my reaping, he goes, let me repeat. Right? When I had finished my reaping, uh, at that time, a few days ago, he took your servant's garment. All my companions will testify for me. I have witnesses, basically, right? And all who were reaping with me in the heat of the sun, they will testify for me that this is true. I am guiltless of any crime, so please return my garment. Right? If the official does not consider it an obligation to return your servant's garment, then have pity upon him and return your servant's garment. Which echoes the text that we saw earlier, right? If you take a garment, you have to give it back. And basically, and if he cries out to me, to God, that is, I will pay heed, for I'm compassionate. And here in this letter, we see basically this same idea communicated. Now, the question is, was this guy, whoever wrote this letter, um, was he, did he know Exodus? Did he know the story in Exodus and say, ah, he's violating this law, so I will, in my appeal, cite the, cite the law, cite the evidence? Or was Exodus not yet written, but that law, that tradition, that rule, was already a rule in ancient Israel. And he knew he could appeal to it. Basically, you know, you have to give me back my coat for the night, and then I'll give you the coat in the morning, and then you give me the tools, and I'll finish working, because I do want to get paid, type thing. So the big question is, is this guy citing Exodus, or is he citing a law that was later written down and collected in what became the book of Exodus? I, I, most scholars would say the latter, is going on, but what it shows is that now you have writing. You have writing by, by folks, you know, writing a letter, it's a complaint letter, right? That's beginning to parallel or cite, if you will, the rules that end up in the Hebrew Bible, which shows you there's a growth of literacy from the common folks and it provides some evidence that maybe the Bible wasn't just made up and written, you know, in the second century BC. Right, or the 3rd century BC. Maybe this stuff does go back quite a ways, at least in an oral tradition before it was written down um, in the exile and, and elsewhere throughout. Masad HaShavyahu. It's an example of common letters 
ref beginning to reflect the, liter the literature of the Bible. How about this one? How about a Torah amulet? Right? How many of you wear a, a good luck charm or a piece of jewelry with your name on it? How many of you from Texas have a belt buckle with your name on it type thing, right? Okay, good. I had one of those growing up. I'm from Fresno, which is kind of like Texas West. It's like an annex, Texas. Anyways, um, you, you wear some kind of jewelry. I, I, I have a ring, but that's it. I, I haven't traditionally worn a lot of jewelry, but this is very popular, and it was the same back then, right? And a lot of times you'll wear something with a slogan on it, maybe one of your favorite phrases or, or a blessing of some sort, okay? Well, here we have two uh, silver amulets which were discovered at Ketef Hinnom, right? Which literally means in Hebrew the, kind of the shoulder of Hinnom or kind of this bend. Hinnom, uh, do we know Hinnom? Right? Gehenom, right? Gehenna, right? Just south of Jerusalem. It's an archaeological site southwest of the old city of Jerusalem. The site consists of a series of rock-hewn, rock-carved burial chambers based upon some, some natural caverns that were there. Okay? In 1979, two silver scrolls, really tiny ones, uh, were discovered, or were discovered um, and published by an uh, archaeologist who's been here to UCLA named Gabi Barkai. And uh, what he discovered on these amulets was pretty amazing. This is why we're talking about it in this class. By the way, uh, Professor Bruce Zuckerman at USC has a lab, like we have the, the visualization lab where we can make digital reconstructions of things. He has a, a high uh, HD photography lab. So these pictures, he takes a lot of pictures of these things and makes them look really pretty and cleans them up. And you can see things that have corroded away, things like that. So if you like digital photography and you want to do archaeology, um, talk to me and I can plug in with Dr. Zuckerman at USC. Anyways, why is this amulet important? A, it was worn. It was worn around the neck or somewhere. It was a piece of jewelry. But what's interesting is what it says. After this long, pardon me? Okay. After this long text, um, um, you get to this point where it says, right? Which, if you grew up in a Jewish family, uh, or if you've been in my bedroom at night when I'm putting my daughter to sleep, this is kind of the ironic blessing. This is the, the, the prayer that is pronounced uh, over the people, right? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance, lift his face upon you and give you peace. You might recognize the last word here. Peace. Now this is in the book of Numbers, right? Chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. So it's a blessing. It's one of the oldest blessings in the Bible. And here now all of a sudden we find it on an amulet at Ketef Hanum, which means what? Kind of the same idea. Either this guy says, ooh, I love my book of Numbers, and so made an amulet with this really pretty blessing on it and wore it maybe for good luck or just kind of because he wants to bless people, I don't know. Or maybe that that blessing had been in the oral tradition, wasn't written down till later. Wasn't written down till later, but it was part of the oral tradition. Remember, a lot of these stories that we have in the Bible were oral traditions for hundreds if not thousands of years, long before they were written down. And now you've got this thing coming from about 600 BCE, right, of one of the most beautiful blessings, right? Uh, you pronounce it at weddings, you pronounce it at all kinds of special occasions, kind of commission. Um, this beautiful blessing on an amulet that we also find almost word for word. Uh, and the reason we don't see word for word is it's broken in here. We, we assume that that's the text is consistent with the Numbers text. Um, but here you've got a biblical blessing and you've got an amulet with that blessing on it. 
dating to about 600 BCE. So even if you want to argue that the Bible was written very, very, very late, you've got to at least concede that you've got pieces of jewelry that are word-for-word -word, uh, texts that are at least 600 BCE. I mean, I guess you could argue that the Bible copied the amulet, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. This is a piece of jewelry. So the Ketef Hinnom uh, uh, amulet is uh, a nice inscription that kind of reinforces this idea, like Matzad Hashavyahu, uh, like Lakish III, that shows that literacy was growing up at this time, just before the exile, uh, so much so that people were actually wearing literature on their bodies. Okay? Now, why a book? Well, we've talked all about becoming a book. By the way, this isn't just a plug for a great book that you should buy um, called How the Bible Became a Book. If you're interested in how all this oral tradition became what we know now as the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, you can buy a wonderful book called How the Bible Became a Book by William Schneiderwin, the creator of this course. Okay, so it's a, a 20 bucks, I think. You can get it online. Um, anyways, The Domestication of the Savage Mind in 1977 by Jack Goody, right? But he, but he writes this. Culture, after all, is a series of communicative acts and differences in the mode of communication are often as important as the difference in the mode of production, for they involve development and storing, analysis and creation of human knowledge, as well as the relationships between individuals involved. The specific proposition is that, and here's his thesis, right, writing, and more especially alphabetic literacy, made it possible to scrutinize discourse in a different kind of way by giving oral communication a semi-permanent form. When oral traditions come to be written down, now you can analyze them differently. You don't have to, and this is one of the things um, that I do as a digital humanities professor, is look at the different ways we communicate with one another using technology now, right? Before we had this old scribal system that we still use today of writing, pressing something that makes marks on a piece of flat stuff that receives marks, um, we, we spoke to one another. Before there was writing, we were speaking. We were speaking and communicating long before we knew how to write and using alphabets, right? And now you've got a different way to look at that. And of course now, everything's up in the air because now we're doing this, right? We're typing, or some of us are doing this. This is me driving and texting at the same time. You can't see legal now in California, you can't do that, but you're doing this. Um, some of you are in bed at night, you know, texting. Some of you, like me, never turn off your computer. And you have your phone, and you, and we're communicating with one, but we're doing it differently than scribal writing. And we're certainly not engraving things in silver, right? But we're still communicating. And look at your spelling, for instance, in the text messages you sent. Send. See, this is what Twitter, Twitter's destroying. I love it. But Twitter is destroying literature, right? And yet it's inventing this whole new form of literature. Spelling things differently? That's not orthographically correct. And yet we got to fit it in with, what, 140 spaces? So we do it. How has literature changed? This is a great research topic if you do the new digital humanities minor here on campus. How, how digitization of literature has changed the way we communicate with one another. Social networking, Twitter, um, you know, spelling, just looking at spelling over time. Anyways, the idea is that the invention of writing, if you will, or, or the, the adoption of writing by, by individuals gave us a different way <clears throat> to communicate in a semi-permanent form. This scrutiny favored the increase scope, in scope, of critical activity, and hence of rationality, skepticism, logic. Basically, you weren't dependent upon what the tribal elder or what your grandfather or grandmother told you was true. Now you could take 
that and you know it could be written down and then you could compare it with written down you didn't have to have all the people in the same place to compare notes you could write it and then go over there and compare oh that's not what he look I've got here what he said so we began to to analyze communication differently once we could write it down and of course once we could write it down then we could vote this one is more credible and this one not so much and it wasn't necessarily based upon the personality of the person making the speech like an influential tribal elder or a politician or something but it was actually based upon facts or analysis or comparisons by the way and this is where this is why I'm bringing it up it's the rise of the book it's the concept of the rise of text of a legal text that becomes the key player in Judaism at this time um, and kind of the decline of the, the king, the charismatic figure who will force you to do things even if, even if you don't think it's right. Texts come to dominate and individuals who come and go in, in, a, in, a, in a hundred years or less um, are on the decline. Texts can last longer than people can. Literacy encouraged at the very same time criticism and commentary on the one hand and the orthodoxy of the book on the other. If we write something down and then we all agree that it's true, now all of a sudden this text is elevated in its credibility and its authority. And this is what we'll begin to see. And you do that over three, four hundred years in a religious context and we get what comes to be known as scripture. That is authoritative text that we all agree is authoritative and we're not allowed to argue against it. Unless, of course, you're not a part of that religion, then you say, well, that's, that's their religion. This is our authoritative text. And even if you're not religious, let's say you're, you're just an American, right? You like the Constitution. The Constitution is a text, right? And it can't be changed until we want to change it, right? But the idea is texts become, you know, they, they are elevated and personal discourse is not so much. The fate of Jerusalem, by the way, will closely follow the interpretation of text from here on out. Because you come into another problem in textuality of what do you do when the text that's written that we all agree is true and, and perfect and we all want to do what it says doesn't match reality. When times change 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years later, when our present reality doesn't match what this text says, do we throw out the text? Do we amend the text, or do we try to make our culture uh, conform to that ancient text? And this is where we get liberals and conservatives when it comes to religion, but that's another lecture. Got it? Once you have a text, you have a problem, because now it's written, right? Do, can we change it? Do we leave it and try to make society conform, or do we abandon the text altogether? And Jerusalem's, uh, the understanding of Jerusalem uh, will follow. Um, the interpretation of text from here on out. Uh, Jerusalem's about to come to an end, and we're gonna we're gonna take a break just for one second while I while I switch slides. But basically, I want you to keep this in your mind. What's happened to the Davidic dynasty in our next lecture? Just be looking out for this. Specifically, what happened to the promise to David? Okay. I want you to keep in mind what happened to the land. What happened to this promise? Remember. I will give you a land, this will be your land, conquer all the people in there, this is your land, I promise it to you and your generation, your offspring forever and ever and ever and ever, right? What about the concept of God's chosen people? You are my chosen people, Israelites. Okay, keep these in the back of your head. And what about the temple, right? The Ark of the Covenant was this portable thing and now they built this temple, it's going to last forever, the promise will last forever. 
what's going to happen and what do we do with the Ark of the Covenant since it just disappears, right? The temple kind of took over um, the, the center of authority, not so much the Ark. And then I want you to keep this question in the back of your mind, and we're going to come back to it at the end of today, at the end of the next lecture, and that is, what happens to faith when experience contradicts it? So now we're starting to get, now we've got the foundation of where all this Hebrew scripture comes from. What's going to happen to people's faith, your faith or, or these other people's faith, when present reality, right, when your personal experience contradicts what the text says? Okay, so hold that thought in your mind, uh, and we'll come to Jerusalem in exile.